You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is your WFHB local news for Friday, April 10th, 2020. Later in the program, I interviewed an IU researcher who is working on a COVID-19 vaccine for children. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have the latest coronavirus news from our remote correspondents. But first, your local headlines. There are nearly 7,000 cases of COVID-19 in Indiana. Indiana State Department of Health reports 300 total deaths out of 35,000 people tested. People 80 years old and higher made up the most number of those who died from the virus. This age demographic made up 37.5% of coronavirus cases. These numbers were updated at 11.59 p.m. on April 9th. Don Johnson, wife of Mayor John Hamilton and Indiana University Moore School of Law professor, tested positive for COVID-19 on Thursday. According to a city news release this morning, Johnson has been self-isolating at home since she first began experiencing symptoms. Since the diagnosis, Mayor Hamilton has self-quarantined and said he will stay home for two weeks, as well as checking his temperature regularly and self-monitoring for symptoms. Hamilton has been practicing physical distancing and teleworking since mid-March. A customer at a Martinsville gas station said its coronavirus policies are being used to discriminate against Asian Americans. The customer told Wish TV that police know it is happening. The customer named David, Wish TV didn't include his last name, said being Asian is why he wasn't allowed in the store Friday after filling up his car with gas. David said an employee kept yelling and badgering him, asking where he was from. David replies that his family was from Korea, but he was born in Louisville, Kentucky. David is a doctor and works one-on-one with those most vulnerable to coronavirus. He also treats cancer patients. David said he often travels to this gas station coming to and from Indianapolis. He won't be coming back anymore. The gas station worker told David he wasn't allowed to buy anything at the gas station or even use the bathroom. Kurt Spivey, chief of Martinsville Police Department, confirmed the details of the gas station worker's comment. Spivey said the business was informed that their behavior was discriminatory and inappropriate. The Morgan County prosecutor said there aren't any hate crime laws in Indiana. However, a person who commits a crime, like battery intimidation, mischief, or vandalism, that is determined to be motivated by prejudice or bias, could face stiffer penalties. According to Wish TV, the county prosecutor says anyone experiencing this type of discrimination should contact authorities. Bloomington City Council approved the appropriation of the food and beverage tax fund expenditures for the local tourism-related businesses' relief due to COVID-19. Economic and Sustainable Development Director Alex Crowley said city personnel would review but not create loan processes. Uh, What's important from a process perspective uh, is for us to really um, let the experts um, make determinations about loans and or to the extent that that there are any grant money coming, particularly from the BUEA, that those be uh, those judgments be made by a group of people who can do that as quickly and efficiently using the expertise they already have as possible. 
So we, uh, it is not our intent for uh, city personnel involved in that process. But as um, Jeff mentioned, the, the, the step that follows that once they've created a recommendation list of, of loans and the terms associated with those, that would then come over to the city and we would be validating that process against policies that we would finalize with that group. And, um, and then we would review and make sure that everything seemed to be, you know, was in order with what they have made in terms of recommendations. Crowley said there will be a maximum validation of all the processes. He said funds are not to support the local economy, but to tactically cover immediate needs. Councilwoman Isabel Piedmont-Smith asked Crowley how a tourism-related business is defined. There are a couple of ways that we can go about doing it. We could go to the NAICS code, right, which is a, a sort of designation, a coding designation of a certain type of entity, and we could conceivably create a definitive list of, of organizations by that kind of coding so that that would be unambiguous. Um, the danger to that is is simply you know getting it getting it right or wrong and um, uh, but but that would be one purely objective way of delivering against that. Um, we could also um, create the opportunity for someone to plead their case, how they might fit in, and that would be a little bit more subjective. But that that might be a way to to um, either augment a coding structure or uh, displace it. Crowley said not all businesses that benefit because of tourism are the same as tourism-related businesses. City Controller Jeff Underwood said businesses that don't qualify for FABTAC funds could qualify for other funding. Councilmember Matt Flaherty suggested prioritizing companies who have continued to support their employees. Councilmember Dave Rollo asked Crowley about the business's qualification cuffs. But the way, the way it's really designed is it is numeric with a cutoff. So it it, uh, it has, I don't know right now, about 10 to 12 different uh, scoring criteria. And then each one is weighted and there is a cutoff. So that a reviewer should be able to be pretty objective about uh, making a, a judgment. Crowley said many businesses who apply will not qualify for funding. Underwood said extra funds could be looked into from FabTech and other sources if the $2 million is not sufficient. He said funds will be given at low-interest loans to recover FabTech funds. Crowley said the city is trying to mitigate loss, not make money. Piedmont-Smith proposed an amendment in order to comply with the State Board of Accounts requirements for fund usage. Whereas the memo from the city's Corporation Council which accompanies this legislation, advises that this expenditure is both appropriate and necessary, and the council explicitly determines that expenditure from this dedicated fund source bears a closer connection to the purposes set forth in this ordinance than to the city's general fund. Council members approved the amendment. Underwood said all recipients would be recorded in public records. The Indiana Department of Transportation has new updates for truck stops. WFHB correspondent Jasmine White has more on the story. As of April 6th, the Indiana Department of Transportation has announced highway closures in Indianapolis. This is not directly related to COVID-19, but will help to reduce the traffic flow, which will prevent the spread of the virus. 
All eastbound and westbound lanes of I-70 from North Split to I-465 will be closed for 30 days. Beginning April 13th, eastbound lanes of I-70 will be closed and will reopen May 13th. Westbound lanes of I-70 will close April 23rd and reopen May 23rd. The Department of Transportation says that since Governor Eric Holcomb's stay-at-home order, traffic has reduced 40%. The department decided that this is the perfect time to accelerate planned construction on I-70 before high traffic volume events resume. During the closure, the Department of Transportation suggests detours to get through or around the city, which can be found on WFHB.org. In other state news, as of April 9, 2020, 42 more Indiana residents have died from COVID-19, being the largest single-day jump in Indiana's death toll during the whole pandemic, making total deaths 245, state health officials say. The Indiana State Agency also reports an additional 430 Hoosiers have confirmed cases of COVID-19. With this reported number, this brings the total confirmed cases to 6,351. Marion County, which is Indianapolis, makes up 38% of Indiana's total confirmed cases. All other Indiana counties have 10 or more new cases. Please remember to wash your hands and avoid travel if it is not essential. Stay safe and reduce the spread by doing your part. For WFHB, I'm Jasmine White. The Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission approved a new door on an East 7th Street building. Program Manager Connor Hederick presented the project in their April 9th meeting. Uh, staff approved a replacement of an old fire escape uh, with a platform and stair. Staff approved uh, enlarging the current doors of the first and second levels of north elevation to 36 inches, egress and accessibility standards. Uh, but staff denied the request to transform a window uh, here into a door. Uh, the petitioners needed uh, a door to meet uh, fire egress standards now that the occupancy load will be increased on the building. Uh, staff denied that. The petitioner filed a appeal um, and therefore According to the Historic Preservation Commission rules and procedures, the full commission needs to review and make a decision on this appeal, and that's why we're here today. So, Hederich said building alterations are best on the back of buildings. He said the new door opening would be modeled after a door opening on the other side of the building. The petitioners said the door is required by occupancy assessments. The building is changing its use. It was previously owned by the university as office space, so it was considered um, business occupancy. It's now owned by a student organization, so it's viewed as assembly, uh, student organization slash worship. So it's now viewed as uh, assembly occupancy, which means it needs to be able to handle a higher load of occupants. Um, that as you do a chapter 34 assessment, it ends up that they need to have an additional, they need to have at least two exit doors. Um, you know, they currently have a front door 
and they have a rear door. However, the rear door is ex- ex- accessed through the kitchen, um, and you're not allowed to do that. The petitioner said a small patio will be built adjacent to the door. Up next, I talked to an IU researcher who's currently working on a vaccine for COVID-19. So I'm talking here with John Patton. Patton, you are an associate professor of biology and Blatt Chair of Virology in the College of Arts and Sciences at IU Bloomington. You've studied viruses for 30 years, particularly rotavirus. So you're now working on developing a COVID-19 vaccine targeted at infants. So doctor, what were your initial thoughts when news of this novel coronavirus broke? Well, I think many of us were somewhat dismayed by how readily it was spreading, not only uh, out of China, but uh, as it's continued to its march across various countries of the world, it's, it's been surprising, terrifying to some extent, especially given the degree of pathogenesis that's associated with it. So what is the potential solution for a coronavirus vaccine? Well, I think at this point, I think uh, all solutions and all options have have to be considered. Uh, Our approach has been to try to, looking ahead, trying to think of how we would routinely vaccinate people uh, to to induce some sort of a protection so that if they ever do, if they're ever infected with the virus, that in fact they at worst would have just a mild disease and certainly nothing as severe as what's going on now. Uh, Most of the vaccines that we get in our life are actually given to us when we're very young, maybe the first two or three years of life. There are some exceptions to that. Certainly the influenza vaccine is a vaccine that's given to us um, yearly uh, if, we're, if we're staying up with that. Um, our, what we're trying to achieve is a vaccine that you would give to young children, much like you were going to vaccinate them against measles or poliovirus or other, many other types of viruses that they may encounter Mm -hmm. uh, and try to induce some sort of protective response that will carry them through uh, most of their life and prevent them coming down from a a COVID-19 type of infection. I see. So how has your work studying rotavirus in the past informed your work on this vaccine for children? Yeah, so what we have learned certainly during the last couple of years is that Rotavirus, not everyone may know, but rotavirus is a, is a virus that uh, infects predominantly young children and causes gastroenteritis, severe diarrhea, and vomiting in, in many young children. About 15 years ago, a vaccine was introduced. Vaccines were introduced in, in the U.S., very effective vaccines. And now, essentially, all children within the first few months of life receive a, a rotavirus vaccine, and that protects them pretty much throughout the rest of their life against uh, contracting any sort of severe rotavirus disease. And in fact, up to about 15 years ago, rotaviruses were the main reason that you would see uh, young children admitted into hospitals due to severe diarrhea. But that's all gone now because of the effectiveness of the rotavirus vaccine. So what we've learned over the last couple of years is that you can use new recombinant uh, biology techniques to modify rotavirus. Its genome is, we might say, is very flexible. Its nucleic acid is very flexible, so that you can get the virus to do different things for you. 
And what we are doing currently is modifying the genome of this virus, modifying rotavirus, so that in fact, when it's being used as a vaccine, it also will, in addition to inducing protection uh, against a rotavirus disease, can also induce protection against a COVID-19 type of disease as well. So then you're basically making a dual vaccine. Young children would end up just having the same number of vaccines, uh, vaccinations that they always have. But in this case, we would hope to be able to replace the currently used rotavirus vaccine with this new version that, in fact, provides dual protection uh, against two major pathogens. I know this vaccine targets children. This would make an important step in our COVID-19 timeline. Um, So what about the elderly and at-risk groups of people? You know, as it stands right now, uh, certainly other groups, we're doing some of that as well, are working on a different version uh, of a COVID-19 vaccine that you would use in adults, uh, older children, for example, uh, much like you would use the current flu vaccine. Uh, But we would hope in that in the long term that vaccines can be developed in which if you immunize the young child, that they in fact would get, would be permanently protected against a COVID-19 infection and you would no longer need to at least routinely vaccinate adults additionally uh, against COVID-19 as a separate immunization. Kind of moving forward, can you talk about how children can be asymptomatic carriers of this virus? Right. So I think one of the important uh, things we realize, even though COVID-19 disease is very significant and major issues are associated with the elderly and and people that have additional uh, risk factors becoming very sick by the virus, children and young children in particular seem to be fairly resistant, resilient against COVID-19 infections, which is great. However, they can be infected. They can be carriers, asymptomatic carriers. And as a result, they can actually be a source of the virus that is spread within the family, spread within the schools, spread to the community to a large extent. And as a result, uh, vaccinating young children is probably going to be an important part of the overall uh, goal of getting this virus under control. Uh, Again, that's part of the intention of the vaccine that we're developing is trying to vaccinate children as as soon as possible so that they develop resistance against the virus and therefore cannot be asymptomatic carriers. Definitely, that would be the end goal. So um, how foolproof is this vaccine? When will it be available for wide use? When you're in the business of making vaccines, and certainly there are other uh, great uh, research groups working on developing vaccines as well, I think basically most of these what are called vaccine candidates. Potential vaccines are being put into a pipeline and uh, what comes out at the other end, hopefully, are vaccine producers will pick up these vaccines and produce the millions of doses that you might need for immunizing a large population, potentially maybe a global population. That takes some time, though, to go from just, uh, in essence, discovery to creating candidates to doing the clinical testing, to ramping up production of the vaccine so that they actually be, uh, hit the marketplace so that they can routinely be used. I think as Dr. Fauci has said before in the news, this is a, not a short, really necessarily something that will happen in just a few months. It probably will take 
uh, at least at least a year, if not certainly longer. I I would expect eighteen to two years, uh, eighteen months to two years is certainly in the vaccine production that would be considered pretty fast. So we're we're hoping that within eighteen to two, uh, eighteen months to two years, we would have a better handle on how good this particular vaccine is, how good the vaccine candidates that we're working on, how effective they are in protecting children against disease. We would hope that would be possible. Well, Dr. Patton, you're doing some good work and I wish you the best of luck. Is there anything else you think our listeners should know about that maybe we missed or haven't covered? Just realize there's probably a lot of asymptomatic uh, cases uh, out there, a lot of people are infected that probably don't know they're infected. So to the extent that you can at least keep washing your hands and uh, try to just be aware that there may be viruses in places that you're not expecting them, it's probably always good to just keep that in the back of your mind. So I'm talking with Dr. John Patton, Associate Professor of Biology and Blatt Chair of Virology at the College of Arts and Sciences at IU Bloomington. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Up next is Artbeat, hosted by Felice Chichek. Welcome to Artbeat with Dr. Felice Chichek at WFHB. We would like to welcome you to this afternoon with Jesse Eisenberg. This is being sponsored by our Stone Age Institute in Bloomington. And I'm happy to say Jesse has donated his honorarium to Middleway House. Some of you had questions about domestic violence to women, and there is a table as you uh, leave a little way house, and they can answer any questions you have about that. It's a wonderful uh, nonprofit that they have. So we are so happy to welcome Jesse and Felice to the stage. Good evening. <laughs> welcome, everybody. Do you think that it helped you with your latest movie, being a parent? Because Marcel Marceau, uh, character, he says 123? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, something like that. Whose parents were killed by Nazis. Yeah, the movie, uh, yeah, played the mime, Marcel Marceau, who in the 30s was kind of like a, you know, fledgling one-man show performer. And then um, as the war broke out in Europe and as uh, the Nazis started moving west, he ended up getting into the French resistance and saving like something like 200 kids from the Nazis. Yeah, in terms of being a parent, yes, uh, 100%. I mean, I guess just the difference between having a child and not having a child is that it personalizes things for you in a way that I didn't realize before. So now when I hear a story of something that happened to a child, you picture your own child that it personalizes an otherwise abstract, you know, horrifying, nonetheless, concept. And art plays sometimes important role in resisting. And sometimes it's political and sometimes art needs to stay away from politics, but have you Ponder upon that. Like this movie deals with historical, very political issue, but yeah. how do you choose uh, the theme? Because some are driven by character, some films, and some are driven by plot. Yeah, my wife and I have a great disagreement about. Like my feeling always with like political work is, it seems like I, I always think that the politics should be so subtle that the audience is not exactly aware of the position of the creator of the art. Because my feeling is is that when you kind of preach something, there's a resistance to it. Uh, so in my plays and stuff, you, you know, I don't think you would ever, you wouldn't walk away thinking that, that there's some particular moral, but I think you would be exposed to a side of anatomy that makes you question your own kind of biases. So you're weaving into the film rather than 
preaching like the media fascist or the communist. Yeah, exactly. But you utilize the art. Yeah, although, you know, there were propagandists who were quite subtle as well. Yeah, so I guess there's, a, there's probably some really clever propagandists who are subtle as well, so I'm more in their tradition rather than the, um, <laughs> rather than the more explicit propagandists. Uh, and how do you prepare for such roles, like becoming a mind? Uh, you only have, I assume, two, three months, not like two, three years. No, for that movie, I had like nine months to study okay. mime and about like six or seven months to do like a French accent because my character is speaking English but with a French accent, which of course doesn't exist. Those people just spoke French, they didn't speak English with a French accent. <laughs> but this will, <laughs> this will trick the audience into thinking okay. we speak French. <laughs> I am curious about the character. I feel that maybe you made him more interesting than he is. But I am well, you know, he as a person kind of comes across almost like there's a removed quality to him that would not work in a drama. So it's, you just can't make a dramatic movie about somebody who kind of appears a-dramatic. Even when he's testifying in front of Congress and he's making statements that are kind of uh, alarming, he still does it with a kind of almost removed affectation that... Yeah, that he says it, yeah, exactly. And so, like, it would work for a drama, and the writer of it is Aaron Sorkin, who wrote, you know, The West Wing and writes these great, brilliant characters that so poetic, creates such wonderful dialogue that is much more dramatic than I can imagine this guy would naturally do. It's the nature of the arts and it gives us insight into like what that was like, but in a more engaging way. That we are out of our time. Okay. I want to end by remembering Toby. For me, she was one of the few people who was a true mentor. I was really happy to work with her to contribute to the Way House. For me, it is really great and heartwarming to see you here, uh, helping her legacy, helping her work to continue. So thank you very, very much for being here and sharing yourself. You have been listening to Artbeat with Dr. Phyllis Cicek on WFHB. Artbeat is produced in partnership with the Arts Alliance of Greater Bloomington. Tune in on Tuesdays on WFHB after 7.15 in the morning and again during the daily local news at 5 p.m. Or you can listen online at wfhb.org. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Jasmine White, Cade Young, and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as other WFHB news programming online at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for KiteLine, a program amplifying the voices of those within Indiana's prison system. Coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at wfhb.org. 
You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 